This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. By now, you've heard so many names, friends, family, neighbors, suspects. I've been managing it all with this big spreadsheet to help me navigate this complicated and just strange story. And yet, as organized as I have tried to make this, it's still proven to be a challenge, especially as new people have come forward to share even more information we've never heard before. In fact, I've learned so much in the past few weeks that we are going to break our last episode into two parts, starting with this one. In the course of my reporting, what's clear is that local law enforcement has always zeroed in on one guy. Chris Denton, Kelly's boyfriend at the time. He was considered to be a prime suspect and even failed a polygraph test, but no charges ever brought. Chris Denton, he died of cancer when he was just 31 years old. That was back in 2004, 12 years after Kelly vanished from Gilmer. Chris and Kelly ran in the same circles. They had a lot of mutual friends. Here's one friend, Lee, who was also a senior at Gilmer during the 91-92 school year. Lee and Chris were especially close. It was funny, he was hilarious. We were really good friends because he was just fun to be around, always joking. Lee acknowledges that Chris had some growing up to do back in high school. He was a hothead, not gonna lie, he was a hothead. You know, he would get in fights. He would he would tell people what he thought when he thought it. He drank, he, he definitely partied, but he kind of hung out in all the groups because he was so funny. He'd always break out into like, you know, Vanilla Ice rap songs and shit. But Lee says Chris was also a generous friend. You know, he was the guy that would give you the shirt off his back to help you out, like for real. And he was a very loyal friend. You know, up until he died, he was a very loyal friend. Never understood why they just focused in so hard on him. In the eyes of Gilmer Police Sergeant James York Brown, who led the search for Kelly, Chris Denton fit the mold of a young delinquent. Everybody knew Chris had a hot temper, and Sergeant Brown has alleged that Chris even punched a girlfriend one time. Chris had also been arrested more than once, most for relatively petty stuff, misdemeanor theft, and running from the cops. But there was this one time, less than a year after Kelly's disappearance. It was the night before Halloween in 1992. The high school football team, the Buckeyes, were losing pretty bad to a rival school. One of Chris's friends got in a scuffle at the game with a guy who was from out of town. As this out-of-town fella and his friends were walking back to their vehicle, a red car passed by. Someone in the red car leaned out the passenger window and stabbed one of them. A knife in the back. The guy wielding the knife? He was none other than Chris Denton. Police found Chris and his buddies on a country road just off Cherokee Trace, where teens were known to party in the woods right outside of town. Under the passenger seat was a knife and a baseball bat. Chris admitted to the stabbing. He was sentenced to 120 days in jail and 10 years probation. And get this, Sergeant James York Brown was one of the police officers on the scene the night of the stabbing, which isn't really that unusual given how small Gilmer is, especially in Texas, where Friday night football is kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation for local law enforcement. So, 
What did Chris have to do with Kelly? The TV show Dateline actually interviewed him about that around 2002. Kelly was a casual girlfriend to him. They'd only hooked up around Christmas just a few weeks before she went missing. We went to two parties together and went to a club together. And you slept together. You had Mm -hmm. sex with her. Mm -hmm. Chris told the news reporter that he'd partied with Kelly the night before she disappeared. On Sunday evening, the last night Kelly was ever seen, Chris said he and his friend Marvin drove by the town square in Gilmer. The video store where Kelly worked was already closed for the night. Yeah, as we were driving by, Marvin noticed his tire was flat. And so, okay, tire's flat. Probably got a ride home or whatever. And we went right on home. Chris's story didn't convince the police for a second. According to Sergeant Brown, Chris failed not one, but two lie detector tests. Keep in mind, though, Lie detector tests are notoriously unreliable. Earlier in the series, we heard about a guy who actually passed a lie detector test when claiming, falsely, that he sacrificed babies in a devil cult. Joe Henry, the video store manager, the last person known to see Kelly, also failed his lie detector test and was still cleared by the cops. So take all that with a grain of salt. And yet, investigators have said that Chris just couldn't keep his story straight and he struggled for answers when questioned before a grand jury. According to an Attorney General investigator's report, Chris was driving an 84 Chevrolet Celebrity on the night of Kelly's disappearance. Chris's dad had bought the car just five months earlier, but he didn't keep it long. Just one month after Kelly was last seen, the car was sold to a dealer in Louisiana to be shipped to Mexico. The FBI tracked down the car. The floor mat in the trunk was said to be missing, The FBI even vacuumed up hair and other debris from the vehicle interior. When lab tested, however, none of the material traced back to Kelly. Did you kill Kelly Wilson? No, did not kill Kelly Wilson. I have no idea what happened to Kelly, whether where she's at, what happened to her. Don't know anything about it. The only thing I know that I wish I'd never met her. Chris Denton had a cousin. Brent Ward. From what everyone says, Chris and Brent weren't just cousins. They were best friends. This is local news reporter Philip Williams. You may know that Denton's cousin, Brent Ward, was tried for perjury. In that case, two different times. But Ward was the only guy that was ever tried in connection with it. Like his cousin, Brent is no longer with us. From what I've been told, he died of complications from diabetes in 2019, at the age of 46. Case files show that during the search for Kelly Wilson, Brent was questioned twice by the grand jury. Both times, he testified that he didn't know anything about Kelly's disappearance. Brent also said under oath that he was working until about 4 p.m. at this gated golf course community called Holly Lake Ranch on the day of Kelly's disappearance. Brent said he picked up Chris after work that day. They went to eat some hamburgers and then Brent dropped off his cousin before 8 p.m. The timing is critical because Kelly was last seen at the video store about 30 minutes later. In other words, Brent's testimony gave Chris a pretty good alibi. The authorities poked some holes in Brent's story. For one thing, his timesheet from Holly Lake didn't show that he'd actually worked that weekend. In his defense, several witnesses said the timesheets weren't very reliable, and yet, Brent's own supervisor testified that Brent absolutely did not work on the day Kelly went missing. It gets worse. 
The supervisor also testified that Brent asked him to lie, to tell police that he'd been at work that day, even though he hadn't. According to a newspaper account from Brent's trials, Brent confided in his supervisor that he was worried because he and his two friends had been at the video store a mere 15 minutes before closing time. Brent said he and his buddies had been, quote, messing with Kelly. The supervisor refused to lie for Brent. A coworker overheard their conversation. What, if anything, did Brent know about the disappearance of Kelly Wilson? The state attorney general's office believes this man, 22-year-old Brent Ward, may have some answers. Yet they claim he's not the prime suspect. That accusation points toward his best friend and first cousin, 22-year-old Chris Denton. No charges have ever been filed against Denton in the missing teen's case, but Ward has been charged with aggravated perjury five times. Charges alleging Ward lied about where he was the night Kelly Wilson disappeared. In the latest pretrial hearing, former Gilmer Police Sergeant James Brown testifies he always believed Chris Denton to be the prime suspect, and he felt Brent Ward knew more than he'd admit. In Brent's first trial, an ex-girlfriend testified that she hadn't seen Brent since the Saturday before Kelly disappeared. When she called him that Wednesday or Thursday to ask where he'd been, Brent told her, If the police ask you, tell them you saw me, not that they will ask. Brent denied the girlfriend's allegation. It was her word against his. So a judge acquitted him. In the second trial, a jury convicted Brent on one of two charges. He was sentenced to three years in jail. But here's the deal. Lee Taylor, a close friend of Chris and Kelly, says there's no way Chris murdered Kelly. And she has Chris's alibi. And I never understood why the police weren't interested in that. And they were never interested. Like, they never talked to me. I went to the police station and told them, I know y'all are looking into Chris, but I was on the phone with him. The little secretary lady took my information and no one ever called me. Wow. Yeah. So, like, I never, ever, ever believed it was him. Ever. Lee is far from the only one who is convinced of Chris's innocence. Let's see what she and others have to say. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Devil Town. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 10, Part 1, The Boyfriend. If you can remember all the way back to the first episode, Lee is the high school friend who was supposed to meet up with Kelly and go to that party outside of town. When Lee got off work at the local pharmacy, she drove over to the video store. Kelly was still inside the store, vacuuming, so Lee went home to change clothes. And that's when her mom said, no way. And then, like, shortly after, my mom was like, no, you're not going. It's too late to go out now. No, 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 And I was like, damn, I should have just never come home. You know, I should have gone straight to Kelly's. 
right about that time, Chris Denton called me and we're talking on the phone and I was like, well, are you going to go with, are you going to go with, uh, meet, meet up with Kelly and them tonight at that party? And he said something of the, like, nah, fuck that bitch. I ain't going or she's being a bitch. I ain't going or something. And I don't know. And I, and I guess they've gotten some little, honestly, I think she was trying to break up with him or kind of stop hanging out with him so much. Um, and kind of blew him off. I don't, I don't really know the details of that, but it wasn't like we got in this huge fight and da, 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 da. You know, it wasn't anything like that. And I knew it couldn't be because she had just been at the thing vacuuming 15 minutes earlier. And so I just never could understand how, if he was the one to get her from the video store, how Kitty could have already have done something, hidden her body somewhere and called me. And then totally normal. She says the timing just didn't make sense. It was shortly before nine. It was like 8.45-ish. And the reason I remember this so vividly, and I don't remember very many things this vividly, my mom was a little bit nutty. And um, I wasn't allowed to be on the phone after nine. And then she really didn't like Chris Ditton. And I remember it was like 9.05 and I was on the phone with him. And she like walked into my room. I was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm on the phone with Chris, and she ripped my phone out of the wall. That's how I remember it so damn vividly, because I never got a phone again. Never got that, that, that thing put back on the wall where you could plug a phone in again. It sounds like Chris was none too happy with Kelly that night. It reminds me of a comment made by retired police officer Richard Sproul in the last episode. The law enforcement theory that Chris was mad at Kelly because she'd been spending time with another boyfriend instead of him, over the Christmas holidays. And he was like, have you talked to Kelly? And I was like, no. Um, when I drove by, she was vacuuming, and I haven't called yet. And so I believe he was with Marvin Pritchett. They were at Chris's house. They were either at Chris's house or Marvin's house. And so it just doesn't make sense that he could have done something to her. And he didn't have a car, I don't believe. I don't believe he had a car. I, I think he was probably with Marvin, but I just, I don't see how they could have ever done something, hidden her, walked into Chris's house without, you know, any blood on them or anything, and then acted like it was normal. Only place they could have had her was like in the trunk of the car. And it, it just, it, it just doesn't make sense. And then if someone was to say, well, maybe they went out later and met up with her. No, I, I just don't think that's even possible. I can't say one way or the other, but I really don't understand what's impossible about Kelly getting a ride from someone else, maybe another love interest, and crossing paths with Chris later that night. Chris Denton's sister declined to speak with me, but in a text message, she said Chris was home with his family on the night Kelly went missing. And Chris also told the Dateline reporter that he went right home after he and his friend Marvin saw Kelly's car with the flat tire at around 9.30 p.m. But it's certainly not unheard of for a teenager to sneak out after his parents are asleep. So, Lee is on the phone with Chris right after Kelly gets off work. Several hours pass before the next morning when Kelly's stepdad finds her Dodge Charger with the slashed tire outside the video store. That's a pretty big window for anything to happen. Did K Kelly say that she had to tell you something? Um, like something was going on. And I think, and, and that's when I think she was kind of like trying to get away from Chris. 
like they were kind of dating and she was kind of trying to distance herself from Chris but there wasn't like nothing happened between them there wasn't a big fight there wasn't you know nothing happened if she did seem like she wanted to talk about something or, or was saying that she wanted to talk about something I thought it was about breaking up with Chris because him and I were really good friends and so I thought she really just wanted to bounce it off of me or you know whatever but I didn't know any of that other stuff how long have they been together uh, a few months, I believe. I believe it had been a few months, like maybe right around the football season that they had started dating. Yeah, because when he talked to Dateline, he said that they had just hooked up a couple times in December, and that was the extent of it. And that may, and that may be it. I might just be thinking. They, but I know they had hung out for a while. And there's no telling. I'm sure Chris was just scared to death. It's obvious that Lee cares a lot about Chris. Whether you think her phone call with Chris is an airtight alibi or not, it is strange that Gilmer police had no interest in hearing what she had to say. Well, I would love for it to come out that he talked to me because I've always felt like people still to this day, you know, have this weird suspicion of him. And to this day, out of every single person that was ever suspected, that's the one person that I don't believe could have possibly done it. I just, I mean, I remember we were joking around. I mean, wouldn't he have been out of breath or weird or something if you just killed somebody? I, ha I was his alibi and, and no one cared. What about Chris's alleged violent streak? His and Kelly's other friend, Michelle, says this was also blown out of proportion. I don't remember him much in high school, but... Um, I was busy with my daughter, but he was, he was ornery. He liked to get in fights and he was extremely smart and ended up getting held back and graduating with us because he just wouldn't do his work. But when he took his like exit exams, he did better than any of us. Like he was smart. He was just honoring and gave his parents fits and there's nothing good about, you know, what he went to jail for, but it's made out to be a different picture than what it was. There was a common rivalry fight between two groups of kids and something had broken out and they purposely went to get Chris because they knew he liked to fight. You know, his friends did. So they went and got him and went back to fight as a group, like one group against another group. And unfortunately, Chris pulled out a knife. Now it's not like this long butcher knife. They make it sound like he's a serial killer and went to stabbing somebody. Okay, what he did is not good. You can't pull out any kind of knife and stab somebody, right? The person did not die. The person did not have great injury. It, it's never fun to get stabbed by any kind of knife, but it wasn't this deadly transaction, I guess. I'm not trying to make excuses for it. I'm not. Um, and he learned a valuable lesson for it. And he was very serious when he was on probation. He did not break his probation. He didn't want to do anything he wasn't supposed to do because he wanted to be a good person. He went to jail. And after he got out, he really wanted to, he was like, I can't do, I, I can't be the wild child anymore. And he really started turning everything around. And then that's when I got to know him. I've had a lot of long conversations with Chris. 
and there in my mind there's absolutely no way he could have had anything to do with it i've had conversations with him where he's in tears and wanted nothing more than to solve her case um and there's no way you could somebody could have those conversations if they were guilty the conversations that i had with him and he was one of the most loving souls once he grew up and was not you know acting out anymore when he was an adult he was a wonderful man he he said he knew he was going to die and he said when i die i need you to be open to listening to me because i'm going to find i'm going to go to kelly when i get to heaven and we're going to send you signals and you're going to have to help find her i mean and he's serious i mean this is one of his very last things that he's going to do is that he wants to be able to find her and clear his name, clear Brent's name, and bring Kelly's mother closure. I asked Michelle about a rumor that's been going around for years, that Chris made a deathbed confession involving Kelly's case. Well, no, none of that's accurate. None of that's accurate. Of course, there's no deathbed confession. His last days were spent at Baylor Hospital in Dallas, and he was very coherent for most of that time. It was just a very short period of time that he was not able to talk and be coherent. And it was during that time that I was having those conversations with him, and nobody ever approached him to try to get a confession. I was there the day he died. Although Lee remembers Chris and Kelly being an item for a few months, Michelle insists they were not in a serious relationship. That was just the narrative being driven to make Chris into the scapegoat for Kelly's disappearance. I think it was more the media. And I think the higher-ups in the community controlled the media and they wanted the spotlight off of them. And, you know, the first person they were going to question is the person they considered the boyfriend. They weren't really truly boyfriend and girlfriend. I think they'd just been messing around and they were starting to have feelings or whatever was going on there. That's your first easy target. It's just like if there's a husband and wife and the wife gets murdered, the first person they're going to go towards is the husband. They're going to question them. To be sure, there are details about Kelly's case that point away from Chris and Brent. The fall before she vanished, Kelly had told her cousin in Louisiana that she was trying to get away from an ex-boyfriend who dealt drugs and wouldn't leave her alone. We heard about that in the last episode. Well, Chris was not a drug dealer. There was also the night Kelly was dropped off by a black luxury car, and she claimed to have not remembered what happened. Not to mention the huge wad of cash her mom found in her bedroom after she disappeared. Well, Chris was from a family of meager means. I recently got my hands on some emails from Kelly's late stepmom, Waverlyn. The contents of the emails were apparently copied from police reports written by Sergeant James York Brown, the original investigating officer. From what I can tell, they've never been made public. In one of the emailed reports, a Gilmer resident named R.F. Dodson told police he was taking his wife to get gas at 8.30 or 9 o'clock on January 5th when he saw a girl standing in front of the video store. She had sandy blonde hair and was wearing cut-off shorts and a large shirt, a match for Kelly. She was talking to a couple of guys in blue jeans and long sleeve shirts. Clean-cut kids 
with a mid-sized car. Chris and Brent in a Chevy celebrity? I have no idea. The other report has even more detail. In that one, a guy from Gilmer named Max Childress said he was walking down the street near the town square when he saw Kelly by the back door of the video store. Kelly was arguing with a man that Max didn't know, but he did recognize him as someone he'd seen around Gilmer. The man was about 25 years old, white, clean cut, with black hair and sideburns. The man with Kelly had a fairly new sports car with dark blue paint. Kelly and the mystery man were arguing when Max, the passerby, heard a slap. What are you looking at? The man asked. So Max left. Max said he later saw Kelly and the same man in the same car turning north on the main highway through town. In her email, Waverland cautions that this guy Max has quite a lot of problems and he's not easy to talk to. His tip apparently went nowhere and he died in 2013. As we mentioned in the last episode, Michelle believes Kelly found out something she wasn't supposed to know, whether that involved a drug ring or something else, and Kelly was silenced. The pursuit of Chris Denton, not to mention the wild, unrelated allegations of demonic sacrifices, all that was a smokescreen. It's, it's much bigger than anybody could anticipate, so you wonder why there's a cover-up. Well, if one girl could expose what's going on and bring that many powerful people down, she's not going to survive. But you got to look at the big picture, too. I mean, Kelly was snatched off the Gilmer Square. She was a sweet young girl. It wasn't a random act. We all know it wasn't random. So that means there had to be a reason behind it. That has to be a pretty big reason to snatch a teenage girl from her work in Gilmer, Texas. It's big. Somebody was in fear. It's not like it was this accident or this or that. It was, I mean, when you look at the bigger picture and you think about it, it's like, oh my God. Michelle brought up Kelly's old boss, Joe Henry, who much later pleaded no contest to possession of child pornography. Everybody knows that Joe, Joe Henry was the last one to see her. And to me, he should have been more of a suspect than what he was. Now you know that he's, being, he's, he's a sex offender, listed as a child sex offender because he, he got busted with child pornography. There's something behind that. You can't dismiss that. The last person that she was with likes videos of children having sex. I mean, it's, you, you can't just dismiss that. It, there's something there. There's something. Joe Henry knows what happened to Kelly. There's no doubt in my mind. I can't say he did it, but he knows what happened. As I mentioned in the last episode, Joe has admitted to engaging in some inappropriate behavior with Kelly including propositioning her as a joke. But he insists he had nothing to do with Kelly's disappearance. Police dismissed him as a suspect long ago. There's something else I've been reluctant to bring up. I'm still not sure it's fair game or even relevant. But it keeps coming up, so let's get into it. Gilmer, Texas is kind of unique. It's home to one of the oldest surviving Mormon colonies in the American South. The families of Chris Denton and his cousin Brent 
are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Angor, the CPS caseworker who investigated the allegations of satanic ritual sacrifices, is Mormon. So is John Melvin Dodd, the Gilmer School teacher and charter member of the Justice for Kelly Wilson Committee. Here's news reporter Philip Williams again. Well, the, one, two interesting, some interesting things came up here that involved the Mormon church, too. Ann Gore, who was uh, one of the uh, Child Protective Services or, or, or Welfare Department workers who was involved in this investigation. Chris Denton, I don't know if he was a Mormon, but his parents are big members of the Mormon church. And Brent Ward, his cousin, who was convicted of perjury, went off on a mission from the Mormon church, and it was said that that was rushed up, you know, about the time all this happened. And so, you know, and then there's some people here named Dodd, a married couple, they're big Mormons, still around here. They insisted that Brown was the one who did it. It's interesting that, you know, the suspects in this case had ties to the Mormon church, and uh, and Mormons were out defending Denton. I guess it leaked indirectly by suggesting that Brown had something to do with it. They're kind of circling the wagons to protect. That's Brown. what uh, some people probably interpreted it to mean. The Dodds are honorable people. You know, I don't think they. I don't think Ann Gore or the Dodds would deliberately frame an innocent person. But it is interesting that, you know, Mormons were involved in this, taken up for uh, people who had Mormon ties that were implicated in this case in some way, Denton and Ward. Melvin says his son, John, actually gave Chris Denton a haircut on January 5th, 1992, the last day Kelly was seen in Gilmer. Chris Denton came over the Sunday that she disappeared. And my son, John, who now is a federal law enforcement official, cut hair. Cut hair for a lot of people. And he would usually do it in my mother's utility room, which is her house is 75, 85, 95 yards or so from where I live. They came over, I don't know, it was, I don't really remember the time, 6 p.m. or so even possibly later and it was Chris Denton and Marvin Pritchett and Brent, Brent Ward and John cut their hair and they said we're going to town won't you go with us and John said okay so after cutting all their hair he got in the car so the four of them were heading out to town well mama's got a moderately long driveway I mean, it's not 100 yards, but it's uh, a little bit long. And John said he just got a strong impression, don't go. So he told him, change my mind, I'm not going. So they stopped and he got out. That is the only reason my son John was not up in Gilmer with them the night that Kelly Wilson disappeared. James Brown was trying to pin this on Chris Denton. Chris Denton had dated Kelly Wilson. And Chris Denton, now his father is one of my absolute closest friends. And I liked Chris. But Chris 
that this town was a bad individual. Chris would take orders for goods from friends, and then he would go to shopping malls and places and steal the stuff and then sell it to them at a you know, rather reduced rate. So he was a thief. He was an organized thief. And Chris had a temper, and Chris had hit Kelly at least once. So Chris Denton was an incredibly good person to try to pin the death of Kelly Wilson on. Melvin insists that Chris is innocent. So why did law enforcement come down so hard on the cousin, Brent, for lying about going to work that Sunday? Melvin says the cops were leaning on Brent, so he'd flip on Chris. He had to tell them about Chris Denton's involvement, or there would be no immunity. He was going to have to lie to them and tell them that I know that Chris Denton killed Kelly Wilson. Or they were going to be able to prosecute him again then. Or at least harass him like crazy. Brent Ward was accused of perjury for claiming that he worked at Holly Lake. And as I said, big deal. It was in the daytime. He never once claimed that he was working at Holly Lake at the time that Kelly disappeared when she got off work. He he said that he was up there in town with Chris and Marvin Pritchett, but that he had asked them to take him home, and they'd drop, he, he lived uptown, and they'd dropped him off at his house. So if Chris Denton did kidnap her and kill her, Brent Ward wasn't even with him. Now, Marvin Pritchett would have been, but... Brent was not. Well, Marvin was in the military by this time, and they brought Marvin here one time and questioned him for the grand jury. And then they dropped Marvin. Marvin was never bothered anymore about any of this. But Brent Ward and Chris Denton absolutely were. Like a lot of people in Gilmer, Melvin Dodd remains convinced that a devil cult murdered Kelly. I can guarantee you Chris Denton had nothing to do with the kidnap, rape, and murder of Kelly Wilson. Okay, so what about this other name that keeps coming up? The other guy who was with Chris Denton that night? I believe he was with Marvin Pritchett. I have not been able to find out much about Chris's friend Marvin. Kelly's friends say they don't remember him all that well. Like Chris and Brent, his family members were Latter-day Saints. He was a year ahead of Kelly in school and had already graduated when she was a senior. Marvin joined the United States Air Force in April 1994. That's about a month after a judge dismissed the murder charges against Sergeant James York Brown and the other defendants. Records show Marvin's parents also moved away from East Texas three years after Kelly vanished. They settled in a rural area of the Pacific Northwest. Marvin has a sister named Cynthia. She goes by Cindy. She doesn't live in Gilmer anymore either. The other day, someone gave me a tip. They told me to check out the comments on a YouTube video that came out back in the spring. The video is called The Devil's Cover-Up, Kelly Wilson. Marvin's sister, Cindy, was in the comments on a public forum for everyone with an internet connection to read. I am from Gilmer. My little brother is Marvin Pritchett Jr. His best friend was Chris Denton, Kelly's boyfriend at the time. 
My little brother and Chris flunked a lie detector test. My little brother stuck to his story, but Chris told a different story on what time they got home. My little brother had to join the Air Force to keep the FBI off of him. My daddy told me that my little brother didn't get home from the party until the next day at 1. My stepmother had to rinse little Marvin off outside with the house. My daddy had surgery and told me Chris and him seen Kelly's boyfriend at the party and fought. Kelly was accidentally killed, and my little brother helped Chris bury her. The police never checked my Granny Pritchett's woods. I will talk and help. People said Chris was giving a deathbed confession, but he would never tell on his church brother or church family that helped these boys get out of trouble for Kelly. Before we get any further, I just want to say that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. We've already had way too many unfounded allegations thrown around in the search for Kelly Wilson. But Cindy made these claims in a public forum on one of the internet's most popular websites for the world to see. She said she was willing to talk and help. I had to get in touch with her. I tracked down a phone number that supposedly belonged to Cindy. I left a couple of voicemails but never heard back. I sent her a Facebook message. She didn't respond to that either. I would have knocked on her door, but she lives in another state and the timing just wasn't right for a long trip. I dropped a letter in the mail. I also sent a letter to Cindy's brother, Marvin. The next time I checked YouTube, most of Cindy's comments, they were gone. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, simply hang up. I finally got a phone number for Marvin. I briefly introduced myself and told him why I was calling. I uh, recently read your sister's comments on YouTube, and I just wanted to reach out to you and say, if you know anything that could help find Kelly and give her parents some answers, I, I really hope you'll consider doing so. And if your sister is just way off base, I, I really need to know that too. My number is... I've given Marvin lots of opportunities to respond. As of right now, I still haven't heard back from him or his sister. Online, I did hear from a different Gilmer resident who said that Cindy's claims are lies and BS. This person declined to be interviewed, but she said she actually helped to search the Pritchett Woods on foot and horseback for Kelly. Later, when I got a call from Amanda Gamble, the private investigator who's searching for Kelly, I couldn't help but vent my frustration. I've actually still been trying to get in touch with uh, Cindy Pritchett. And that's just so baffling to me that she would make all these crazy accusations, accusations. on, on yeah. YouTube. And then, and she's like, I want to help. And then as soon as I reach out and I'm like, hey, here's your chance to help. Then like she it deletes most of the comments and does not right. respond. So I don't know. I'm sure her brother was like, you better take that shit off of YouTube. <laughs> but it'd been, it'd been up there for like for seven, seven months. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all very, very, very weird. But Amanda, she'd actually called to talk about something else. She was chasing a different lead. But I'm going to tell you right now, 
that's got me thrown for a loop and kind of shook. Coming up on part two of the season finale of Devil Town. I remember because how dramatic it was when I stopped at the stop sign after I left her house. Somebody started beating on my side glass. I rolled my window down and she said, Kelly Wilson, Kelly Wilson. He was obsessed with Kelly Wilson. A Gilmer man convicted of nearly three dozen sex crimes. And he's obsessed with Kelly Wilson. And I don't know about a shrine at his house. He had clippings all over. Seems like it might have been the kitchen. Uh, all over the walls. And an anonymous tip leads investigators to the very same sex offender's former home. A cute little house that, by some strange coincidence, is now owned by one of Kelly's best friends. He um, is telling him that he's received an anonymous letter, and it is saying that possibly Kelly is buried under our current home. The FBI is here. They're digging up. I mean, are you thinking, like, oh, my gosh, like, Kelly is, is here. Devil Town is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Audio engineering and editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score is by Robert Ellis. Recording by Austin Sisler at Eastside Studios. If you like the show, leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.